Almighty, we pray and ask that in your great mercy and in your grace that you would rise up. That you would make known among your people once again the power of your love and and the measure of your might. That you might raise up in this generation a people who don't play church, who don't worship out of tradition because our wife or our husband do and we just simply come to pacify or to please them. Lord, we pray that you would just awaken within your people by your Holy Spirit in the name of Christ. It's a deep and abiding passion that hates performance without the heart and obedience that doesn't come from a sense of awe in what you have done, not only in who you are, but what you have done in, in Christ, what you've done in giving us the Spirit and what you will do in the renewal of all things. Lord, I pray that you would just quicken us and open eyes and hearts to see and to know and to feel your greatness. Not just to know about it with our heads or write it down on paper in a doctrinal statement, but to live it and to feel it and to know it and to live for it. Create a holy urgency and burden among your people to once again follow Christ with everything that they have, trusting him with all that they are. We pray that he would be central here in this church. We pray that the Spirit would fill the people of this church. We pray that your word would saturate our hearts and that we would be driven by your love for us and by your Spirit, our love for you. Will you help us now, Lord, understand your word with our minds, but then take it and just sink it, soak our souls in your truth. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. At this point, our, our children's church is dismissed. If you're new with us and wondering where your kids should go, um, they can actually exit through these two doors here, and they will be met, and um, you can get them afterwards. And while they're leaving, if I could invite you to turn to Psalm chapter um, 147, verse 11. Psalm 147, verse 11, and I'm going to be looking at another verse in Psalm 130, verse 4. This is a bit of a, a different message. Uh, this morning because the topic we're going to look at is far bigger than one psalm. So we're going to be kind of pulling a theme out of the psalms and then we're going to be kind of looking at other verses in scripture um, because it is an enormous topic. And that topic that we're going to explore this morning, and it is in some measure an exploration because I want you to kind of go through the process of my own discovery of this particular topic. The topic is the fear of God or the fear of of the Lord. It is a, it's a, it's a topic that I've had to wrestle with as I've, as I've immersed myself in the Psalms over the last couple of years. I have kept hitting this concept of the fear of the Lord, 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 and how vital it is to the relationship of God's people to him, the fear of the Lord. But it's a topic that if we face kind of head on and we take a real honest look at it, I think it takes some wrestling um, for, a, for a number of reasons that I just want to kind of share with you some of my wrestlings with this topic called the fear of the Lord. One reason why you have to wrestle with it is because in our, our modern culture, uh, notions of fear are almost entirely negative. And people spend enormous amounts of money on therapy trying to rid themselves of these ingrained fears of, 
of being rejected or, or loneliness or of not pleasing somebody. So we see fear as almost entirely a bad thing in our culture, and we avoid it. We don't like it. And so the word kind of conjures up all kinds of negative images. And to make matters worse, what we fear in our experience, we don't like. If you are a person who is fearful of heights, you don't like to go to high places. If you have a fear of snakes... I have a good friend here who fears snakes. You don't like snakes. You don't have a boa constrictor as a pet. If you are afraid of those little furry spiders you find in your house once in a while, it makes your kids scream and your wife say, sweetheart, 10 feet up there, there's a spider. Can you get it at 12 o'clock at night? You don't like spiders. And the list goes on. What we fear, whether it's terrorists, cancer, bad news, We don't like it. In fact, we run from it. We avoid it. We consider fear to be incapacitating, paralyzing. So why in the world would we want to or would we be called to fear the Lord? Can one really fear something and like it at the same time? So there's this kind of cultural reaction to the whole notion of fear that makes wrestling with this topic of the fear of the Lord, I think, important. I also wrestled with this because I came to this psalm, Psalm 147, and when I got to verse 11, I hit like a brick wall. I just had to stop and say, am I reading this right? Because Psalm 147, verse 11, it starts all wonderful, like the Lord, you know, he heals the the, the brokenhearted and he binds up their wounds and, and all of this wonderful stuff. Then you get to verse 11 and it says, the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him in those who hope in his steadfast love. And just stop right there. It's like, so the Lord is pleased in people who fear him. He is happy. He's delighted. He's glad when people fear him. And then what's also astounding about that verse is that within one sentence, we find the word fear, hope, and love. That he looks pleasurably on those who fear him, but also who hope in him. His love for us. Can fear exist with a God who loves us and hoping in that love? According to this verse, that can happen, and it's what pleases the Lord. And so if we want to live lives pleasing to the Lord, we must foster a sense of of this thing we call fear. So the Lord takes pleasure in those in a church if we fear him. So that kind of ups how important fear of the Lord is. But then you add on to that as well as you kind of explore the rest of the Psalms and and, and the whole idea of the fear of the Lord permeates their verses and chapters. You realize that saving grace itself is tied to this thing we call the fear of the Lord. So I I hit Psalm 103. And there are three different times in that Psalm where I keep hitting these stop signs, these brick walls. And 103 is one of those amazing Psalms that comforts God's people. It's that, you know, um, forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your, all your diseases and redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. So it's all this wonderful stuff. Then you get later on in the psalm and it says, As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is God's steadfast love towards those who fear him. He loves people who fear him. So his covenant love is connected to fear. 
couple of verses later, it says, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. A couple of verses yet again later. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting to those who are on those who fear him. So I'm like, okay, your love, your compassion, all of what your covenantal, relational, eternal things, those are offered and given and shown to people who fear the Lord. That means saving grace, being saved from sin. It's connected to this thing we call the fear of the Lord. So you got to wrestle with it. Psalm 34 verse 7 tells us that that God delivers those who fear Him. And Psalm 85 verse 9 tells us that salvation is near to those who fear. So here you have salvation, you have deliverance, love, compassion, all tied to this thing called the fear of the Lord. So you see, it's, it's not just a small thing. It's, it's, a, it's a, a big thing. It's, according to Proverbs, the very foundation stone of all true wisdom that allows you to live life properly in God's world. That, that fear is the beginning of wisdom. So, so you have these, it's, it, it's what pleases the Lord, is this idea of fear. And then you have this saving grace, which is attached to this thing we call fear. And then, and by the way, some might, might object and say, well, and I've read this. Well, the fear of the Lord is an Old Testament concept. In the New Testament, God changes the way he motivates people. He used to motivate by fear, now he motivates by love. Because fear, he realized, doesn't work. So he switched to love. Now that's the insinuation of some of the things that I've read. God changed taxes. Now, did God really like, do a t- test trial run with Old Testament people and realize, wow, that didn't work, so I'm going to shift? You just read the New Testament and you realize the apostles and our Lord, our King himself, emphasized the importance of fear. The Apostle Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17, that we are to conduct our Christian lives with reverent fear of the Lord. The Apostle Paul tells us that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And that's not fear of men. That's fear of the Lord. That's Paul. That's Peter. And then Jesus himself taught us in Matthew chapter 10 when he told his disciples, do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, I'll tell you whom to fear. Fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. In other words, you're going to fear somebody, fear somebody with ultimate power, not just the ability to take physical life, but God who holds life, the keys to life, death, Hades, and heaven. Fear him. So Jesus himself emphasizes this sense of the fear of the Lord is important. So it's Transcovenantal. It's from beginning to the Bible to the end of the Bible. It's an important thing. In fact, it's called the eternal gospel in Revelation chapter 14, where an angel flies in heaven and declares the good news of fear the Lord and glorify Him. So, it's tied to saving grace. But then it's even more of a wrestle. For those of you who have read the Scripture through, when you come to statements that seem to suggest that we aren't supposed to fear the Lord. In other words, from one angle, it seems as if, seems as if the Bible contradicts itself with relation to fear. Now, you've already heard statements that God delights in those who fear Him. Um, 
that his love and compassion and so forth are tied to this thing called fear of the Lord. But then we come to statements like Romans chapter 8, verse 15, and Paul seems to switch his game, sings another tune. Because he says in verse 15 of chapter 8 in Romans, he says, For you did not, talking to Christians, believers, you and me, he said, You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So he's saying to us, we're not supposed to be slaves to fear. Now how does that fit with work out your salvation with fear and trembling? Or 1 John chapter 4, verse 18, where the Apostle John says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So the way he talks about fear in 1 John 4, 18 is that they are mutually exclusive. This kind of fear is incompatible with love because love casts it out. So here you have what seems to be potentially a contradiction. We're supposed to fear the Lord, but we're not supposed to fear. So anybody with a thinking mind that's trying to understand and digest the Scriptures is going to have an issue with this. And it needs to be wrestled through and figured out. What does it mean? How are we not supposed to fear and how are we supposed to fear? You see, why, why, when you really take an honest look at this, it's like, wow, I've got to work through this. I think it's taken me a number of years to work through this. So that's the question. What does it really mean then to fear the Lord? In light of the fact God takes pleasure in it, it's tied to saving grace, and the fact that there is this seemingly contradictory statements in Scripture about not fearing but fearing. So let's explore that a little bit in three parts with what little time we have left. Let's, let's explore a definition or form a definition of fear that, that squares with all of Scripture, or at least those parts that I just mentioned. Then show and consider how, it, how does it function then? What is it supposed to do in us? And then last, how do we grow it and how do we nurture a sense of fear if it's that important? The first question has to do with definition. What exactly then is the fear of the Lord? Well, let me start by acknowledging what should be obvious to everybody here, is that fear is a heart word. It's not merely an action, but it's something that emerges from within, from within the heart. It is an emotional response to something outside of us. That's fear, is a heart affection feeling word. We do not fear something if we don't feel something. Um, you're, you're, you're afraid of heights. Someone takes you up on the side of a mountain where there's a big cliff. You will feel fear. You know, you're, you're, you'll start to sweat. At least I do. Your chest will tighten. Your heart will pound. It will race. And you'll shallow breathing. That's how you'll feel because fear has an effect upon the body. So fear is a response of the heart. So we're talking about here the fear of the Lord is something that takes place within. It is a response to God. Now let me add a step and tell you what that fear, that feeling is not based upon those two texts I just read from you, for you in Romans 8 and 1 John chapter 4. In both of those texts, the broad context is wrath and punishment. Know that the statement here when Paul says, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back again into fear, 
Well, the first verse of that chapter says, There is therefore now no condemnation, that there's no wrath left. The first John 4 passage, the broad context, is also that of punishment and wrath. And he says, verse 18 again here, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. So in both of those contexts where he says we're not to fear, he's talking about wrath and punishment. Which the New, I shouldn't say New Testament, because I think all believers of all testaments should feel this way. But for the one who trusts in the Lord, we are not to fear that God is going to punish us. Because that has been released, relieved. All of the punishment and wrath due to our sin has already been extinguished in Christ. So we're not to have this kind of cowering, cringing, tail-tucking, panic-ridden fright that somehow God's going to clobber us with an eternal tool and just smash us to hell. That's inconsistent for a Christian who believes that Christ has paid it all. And therefore we are liberated now children, not slaves to fear. So he's talking about that kind of cringing, cowering fright or panic that God is going to smoke me. Maybe the way that a a battered woman would feel when her husband who loves to abuse and, and just beat her gets drunk and comes after her and she just covers her head. That is not what pleases the Lord. I wouldn't want to be seen that way as a father to my children, and the Lord does not want to be seen that way as well. And the cross proves that. So believers are supposed to live with a sense of freedom. I've been freed from those fears. I'm no longer fearful of his club. And you know who, who got this right right on was a man who, who wrestled with this too, who wrote probably the most popular hymn, Amazing Grace. John Newton. In verse 2 of that, and you'll remember it as I say it if you've been in church for a while. Verse 2, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." He wrestled with it, and he came to the realization that when one is awakened to faith in God, there is a fear that's born that's healthy, but at the same time, fear is relieved. And that is the fear of punishment, that God is going to somehow retaliate upon you for what you have done. Because one trusts in the sufficiency of Christ, his cross, that there is no more wrath for me. So the kind of fear that we're supposed to have is not that kind of a cringing, cringing, cowering fear of of God's wrath. That is inconsistent with love. You can't love someone that you cower from. So... It's not the cringing kind of fear. So what is it then? We still haven't given it a positive definition. We know it's a response of the heart. It's not the cringing, cowering. So what is it? What is it that Newton was talking about? We said, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." What is the fear he's talking about and that the Bible's talking about? Let me offer to you the best definition I can come up with. Here's the definition of kind of fear that pleases the Lord, the kind of fear that God extends his love and his compassion and his salvation and his deliverance to. And that is this, that it is the feeling, or we might call it an affection because it's inward, it's a heart response, 
It's a feeling of astonished awe in the face of God's overwhelming greatness. Let me, let me just rewind, play that again. That is that feeling in the heart of astonished awe in the face of God's overwhelming greatness. And I'm not talking about just the overwhelming greatness of His power or of His might. But overwhelming greatness, that astonishment of, of all of His attributes that He has revealed to us, to His love and to His mercy and to His forgiveness, that all of those things should create this sense of astonished awe at the overwhelming greatness of all that God is for us. And that became really clear to me in, as I've immersed myself, when I came to Psalm 130, verse 4, another stop sign for me. That's written here. There he's, that's the out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, and so forth, where he says, O Lord, if you should mark sin, O Lord, who could stand? Then he says, but with you there is forgiveness. That. Here's the purpose of forgiveness. He forgives that you may be feared. And you, so let's just stop here for a second. That verse is completely backwards. One doesn't forgive to be feared if you think of fear in the fright or cowering sense of the word. That doesn't create fear. Forgiveness doesn't. What creates fear on that kind of a scale is God hurling a meteor at earth and uh, the whole thing exploding or Him unleashing the vultures of hell. I mean, that kind of stuff makes you cower. But no, here it's your forgiveness. It's His mercy. It's His love. He says that your name may be feared. That means it's, it's, it's not just this trepidation. It's, it's the sense of, oh my gosh, sends you dropping to your knees. Like, I can't believe that you love me that much. And I can't believe that you would pay that price. And I can't believe that you have given me that reward. That is a sense of inward astonishment, awe, a kind of a gasp of the soul, a silenced amazement, whatever you want to call it. That's the fear of the Lord that should be in each and every person who really trusts in the Lord and whom He has awakened to Himself. Awe. Wonder. Awestruck, we just sang. It produces the kind of statements like Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 11. Lord, we delight to fear Your name. What? You del- of course, because it's a sense of wonder and awe and amazement at all that God is. That's why He could say that. Or that Paul, in his utter amazement of God at the end of his gospel section of Romans, could say how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord that he should be his counselor for from him, through him, and to him are all things. He just like throws up his hands and says, wow, I can't imagine. That's getting at the fear of the Lord. It's what you feel sometimes when you, you're singing a song like Revelation 5, the Revelation song we just sang, and all of a sudden image, images come to your mind of Revelation 5 in which the four living creatures surrounded by the 24 elders surrounded by myriads and myriads, ten thousands times ten thousands, and it doesn't even describe his face because it's so glorious and your heart just goes, wow, that's feeling. Fear of the Lord emerging one's heart. That's what it is. It reminds me a little bit of what I experienced the first time that Pete Gaudet took a group of us up to that mountain. 
Half dome. This is the part John was talking about. Climbing up the cables. And you get to the top. The first time was the most amazing, as most first experiences are. And you're standing like on this monolithic mountain of granite. And you're staring off over a chasm almost a mile deep. And surrounding you is like panoramic, 360-degree views of nothing but sheer and powerful glory of creation. And you just stop. There's a sense of trepidation because you're looking and you see this chasm, and yet there's this glory and beauty all around you, so you feel trepidation and pleasure and delight all at the same time. That is just a smidgen of, through the eyes of faith, being able to see that God created that. And for me, by the way, that wasn't just awe of creation. That was awe of creator reflected in creation. That's, that's it. It's that inner, wow, I can't speak anymore because I'm just too possessed by what I see. I'm just speechless. That's, that's the fear of the Lord delights in to see you go, wow. To see you go, I don't have any words for that. That's the fear of the Lord. And that's what God delights in. That's what's tied to salvation. Now let me just do an aside here and say that at some point, now this is for believers, those who actually believe that God's love has conquered their sin. The day is coming, because the scripture declares it, in which God will lay bare the earth. And I want you to understand the context is that will be after millennia and millennia and millennia of patience and mercy and grace saying, turn to me, turn to me, fear me, glorify me, in which humanity will at some point be judged. And when that happens, those who haven't trusted in the triumph of God's love at the cross, we're told in Revelation 6 that they will crawl into caves and they will call upon rocks saying, will you hide us from the wrath of the Lamb? We will never have to experience that because we have found sanctuary behind the fortified walls of Christ and His love because it's already been extinguished. So there is a fear that you never want to experience, but then there is a fear of the Lord that is that wholesome and awesome, wonderful, wow, astonishment and awe. That's what it is. It is an astonished awe in the face of God's overwhelming greatness in all of his attributes, mercy, love, and so forth. So, now, someone could say, that's so impractical. It's just talking theology. This is the function of it now. You know, you're, you're absolutely dead wrong. As I've said before, generally speaking, we don't have a problem with not enough information. We have a problem with lack of motivation. And fear along with love, the fear of the Lord, that sense of amazement, is one of the most powerful motivators to a faithful, worshiping Christian life that there is in conjunction with our love for Him. So it's deeply practical. On the one hand, it functions in the Bible and should function in our lives to motivate some intense and radical faithfulness to the Lord. Obedience. Because we're in awe of Him. So you look where the phrase, the, the fear of the Lord is found in Scripture, and you realize it has had a radical impact on great people, or people of great faith. So we read it in, in the opening chapters of the Bible, that Noah was called upon by God to construct a ship, 
uh, not a small ship, but a big ship that would take a long time to build because a flood was coming. And we're told in Hebrews 11 that Noah built that ship and a tremendous amount of labor went out and work. What motivated it? We're told that he feared the Lord. So that it was the fear of the Lord that compelled him, gave him the fuel to put together this ship and gather all those animals. We're told that Abraham in, in, in Genesis chapter 22, when God said, I want you to take your beloved son, son that I gave you, Isaac, and I want to take him, you to take him up Mount Moriah, and I want you to sacrifice him there to me. The most horrific kind of command one could ever imagine coming from the mouth of God. So Abraham takes his kid up there, you know the story, and he's just about ready to do it, and God says, hey, stop, I was just testing you. Now I know that you fear me. So fear of the Lord motivated the most impressive sacrifice in the Old Testament. The midwives in Egypt. Pharaoh said, I want you, when, you, when those uh, young Jewish women bear children, if it's a son, I want you to take that son and throw it into the Nile. That was a decree by Pharaoh. And these mid- midwives, instead of doing the command and decree of Pharaoh, it said that they protected and hid the children. They saved them. Why? Because they feared the Lord. That is, they knew in their measuring of things that the massiveness of the power of God next to the puny and infinitesimal power of Pharaoh was nothing. And feeling that in their heart, they said, we will not kill these children. We'd rather face Him than Him. It was the fear of the Lord. So it it, it motivates Faithfulness in life and obedience in life. When one knows that, that God is big and He is massive, you have this sense of awe. It not only motivates obedience, but it really keeps you from the edge of the cliff too. There is a sense of trepidation when your heart knows who God is and what length He went to to forgive you of sin. You know, it's back to the mountain thing. There's no way in tarnation I would do cartwheels on the edge of that mountain. Because that's a dangerous place to be, to treat that mountain with disrespect. And so one knows that, hey, Lord, I, I don't even want to get close to that. It is a great deterrent to walking down a hardened life of sin. Because you have a sense of holy awe and that astonished amazement at who God is. So it, it motivates faithfulness, but it also inspires true God-honoring worship. As you know, worship's not just about singing songs. If you're just coming on a Sunday morning just to sing the song like, The Lord is Great or Great is the Lord, but there's no commensurate wow factor in your heart, then those are just words. Worship begins when the heart is awed and wondered and amazed at all that God is, even if it starts with just a seed. You know, holy worship in, in heaven... Um, we're told that the angels themselves fear the Lord. They tremble. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations, who will not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name. All of heaven fears the Lord because they know and sense His unexplainable, immeasurable greatness. That's where worship begins. It's with the fear of the Lord, that awe, the astonished awe and amazement of who God 
is. So it is practical. As you grow in the fear of God and the awe of God, you will find yourself becoming more and more faithful and obedient and radical in that obedience, and you will find yourself coming and worshiping, and it will be that sense of, I want to drop to my knees and raise my hands and just say, thank you. That's what it does. So it functions powerfully. And by the way, if there is, and I am going to say that there is, and I think you would resonate with this. If there is a flippant attitude towards obedience to Christ in the church today, perhaps, let's erase perhaps. Let's just say there is a famine of the fear of God in the church. A sense that Our God is awesome and mighty and the heart to believe what we just sang, awestruck with wonder. And to have at the name of Christ a sense of trembling like a low bass note rolling over the congregation. That's the name of God. There's a sense of holy awe. When God begins to renew that in our our time and generation, then we'll find people being faithful. We'll find people worshiping because they stand in awe of the Lord. The the question, final question is how, how? How? How do we re-nurture, rekindle, renew this sense of this um, astonished awe in the greatness of all that God is, especially in Christ Jesus? In one sense, no one can generate the fear of the Lord. It's not something that's ignited by the human will. You know why? Because we do not fear what we do not believe to be true. In other words, fear is built on faith. You know, (laughs) I can say that I do not fear and I cannot fear Martians invading planet Earth. There's a reason for that. Most of you, I hope, don't believe that either or fear that. I don't fear it because I don't believe they exist. People fear snakes because they believe they exist. People fear heights because they see mountains like that and they know it exists. So fear is always built on faith and faith comes from an awakening within. Something God does in the soul of saying, here I am. And when that happens and faith is born, then a seed of fear is placed in the human soul. And then we have the capacity by grace by the Spirit of God, to nurture and grow that sense of fear like a fire. And it's something every one of us in here needs to do. Not just once a year, but every day, kindling a fear of the Lord, a holy awe and amazement at all that He is, and His power and His might and so forth. So how, Dan? So how can we nurture it now that we believe? Two ways. One... Let God's handiwork, let His creation, everything you see around you, inspire in you a sense of holy awe as to who God is. That's how creation, trees and plants and mountains and streams and oceans and stars and sun and moon, that's how those things functioned in the life of ancient people. Now, I know we live in Fairfield where like a gazillion watts of light are thrown into the atmosphere so we can barely see the stars. 
But in darker times, David could lay or stand under a dark sky and say, the heavens declare the glory of God and the, the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Night to night pours forth speech and day to day reveals knowledge of Him. So He let creation, the stars, the expanse that He holds in the palm of His hand fill Him with a sense of amazement and wonder. He even could look at His own body and say, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. This is amazing. That fear is a fear of how God made him and the intricacy of his wisdom. Or he could write, you've determined the number of stars in the sky and you know them all by name. He knows them all. Put that in your think tank and try and figure it out. You know how God inspired Job to fear after he got done with his little temper tantrum? He kept pointing to mid-creation. Job, do you know the way to the light? Pointed at creation. Job, have you ever taken a stroll in the deep? Job, can you grasp the expanse of the earth with your mind? Job, can you pull out Leviathan with a hook? And finally, at the end, after God pointed and pointed, because creation is just like minuscule compared to the power and the might of God. Only then does Job say, I have uttered things I do not understand, and I have spoken things too wonderful for me. And he learned that place of the fear and the awe and the amazement of God. You know what? Of the biographies that I've read of great women, women, women and men of faith, almost every one of them, without exception, was obsessed with seeing the glory of God in nature. You know, so whether it was Jim Elliot looking at the, the, the amazing forests and the orchids that grew there, or Amy Carmichael and her contemplation of the vast ocean she was sailing across, or Jonathan Edwards and his astonishing observations about a simple spider. These people knew how to fear God because they let creation soak in their soul. So in other words, the next time like a thunderstorm rolls through Fairfield, and I know it doesn't happen here very often like in the Midwest, but when it does, turn off your dang computer and stop surfing the internet. Turn off your, compu- uh, your, your television. Turn off the lights. Go to a safe place that you're not going to get zapped by lightning. And let God's storm fill your soul with a sense because it's his storm and that's nothing compared to his power. The next time you see a boiling, frothing, violent ocean, just stand there and be amazed at who God is and what he has done because that's nothing compared to him. You see a mountain like this and you're surrounded by a panoply of glories. Just stop and realize this is nothing compared to him. You have to let creation soak into your soul and it will inspire a holy fear of God. We don't get it out, get out enough. And then the second is to meditate and feast your heart upon redemption as recorded in Scripture. All of these amazing events have been recorded so that we can go back and fear the Lord. So if you spend any time, you don't just rush over a portion of Scripture like God sending rains for 40 days and 40 nights and drowning an entire world, but saving eight souls. That should just cause you a little bit of fear or realizing that in a single day he turned Sodom and Gomorrah into an ash heap and saved Lot and his two daughters. Or 
to see and contemplate the fact that God crushed the most powerful Pharaoh on earth with ten plagues and saved his people because he loved them. Or, and ultimately, you kneel before the cross, which holds in it some pretty awe-inspiring images of the power of God's wrath, but the boundlessness of his love. Not just to see it as a cross, but to see that that's one of the greatest displays of all times of God's love for his people that would bleed for sin so that he could create in us a new heart. Or fast forward to the end when God comes and all of heaven and earth flee from his presence. And everyone stands before him as final and complete ultimate judge. Those redemptive events if taken into the soul and allowed to soak by the Holy Spirit, will generate and nurture and rekindle a sense of holy fear and awe of who God is. But I'll tell you, it's not going to happen if we're just trying to chase our tails week in and week out, chasing after every trivial distraction there is, meanwhile, letting glories all around us in the Bible and in creation pass us by. You have to stop. Have the courage to say no to a lot of things in your life. And saying the most important thing for me right now is to stop doing anything, pause, behold, be bewildered, and be still and know that He is God. Until God's church stops with all the distraction turmoil, I don't know that we'll really be able to kindle in our reflections on creation or the great events of redemption a true soul-altering, trembling fear of the Lord. But that's what I want. That's what I pray for. And in my meditations, when I go backpacking this week, I'm praying, Lord, just bewilder me with with your creation. Because I want, I want that astonished awe of all that He is. And I hope you do as well. Because the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear Him in those who hope in his steadfast love. Will you, uh, we want to be a church who just prays simply without big hoorah. If you're here with somebody, wife, husband, kids, friend, and you, you're comfortable praying with them, will you just pray over each other and say, Lord, give us a holy and healthy fear of you. Build an awe into us and help us to worship you and be faithful. And if you're here by yourself and you're not comfortable praying, that's fine. We just, the church is supposed to pray, and so we wanted to pray. So, Let's just pray and ask God, will you awaken and nurture and rekindle a sense of your fear in our time? And then, John, you'll close us with a song. So let's, let's pray and let's let God's people fill the room with petitions and pleas that we would fear him. Mm-hmm.